what I would like to do is sort of lay, lay out before us a vision for, I believe, what God is calling One City Church to this year. And, uh, and I hope that it will be an encouragement to you. January, as you know, is a month of people making promises to themselves uh, in the form of New Year's resolutions. Uh, just by show of hands, how many people made a New Year's resolution of one kind or another? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know yourselves, right? The second follow-up question was, how many have broken it already? You just didn't even do it. <laughs> well, I did. I broke it the second day. More exercise. That didn't happen. There's always next year. What is happening here? Um, we make these resolutions, or some people make resolutions, because they think that uh, it's going to improve their life, it's going to make them happier, whatever that, that thing is that they either give up or start to do. And uh, they, have, they hope to have some success that they can point to as a result of that. Uh, well, tonight... Maybe this won't land on you guys since y'all aren't a resolute kind of congregation. But I want to challenge us that it's not a success or successes that we ought to be shooting for. I want us to shoot to just do enough. In fact, that's the message, the title of the message. Doing enough in 2020. Doing enough. Just do enough. I've done enough. It doesn't sound very American. doesn't sound inspiring or uh, have enough ambition behind it. Just do enough. Well, I think you'll see in a minute why Doing enough is significant. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10. As we think about doing enough. This is a chapter, as you're turning there, where Jesus is called his disciples and he's preparing them for the life that, it, that they will lead as one of his followers, one of his disciples. And the, the concept of being a disciple didn't start with Jesus. Rabbis had disciples in Jesus' day. Uh, a disciple was simply a, a pupil, a learner, a follower. And so when Jesus called his disciples, they, uh, those who he called out to, and Jesus would have been considered a rabbi, was called rabbi uh, because of his teaching, but uh, when he called his disciples, they knew that it was a life of being a follower. So our text tonight is Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? When we shoot for doing the right kind of enough, what it means is we're shooting to be like Jesus. And that's why enough is enough. This year at One City, what we're going to be focusing on is an emphasis on discipleship. In our first three and a half years as a church, we have worked at uh, being a, a church that's strong in fellowship. We've, learned, we've worked at being a church which has a, a heart for reaching out to those uh, outside of our walls. Uh, but there is a growing feeling within us that we need to focus uh, not to the exclusion of fellowship, and certainly not to the exclusion of reaching out, but uh, building within one another, within the family that God has brought here. So we're going to have an emphasis this year on discipleship and different things that we do, um, which will be rolled out in the months to come. But what we're looking when we talk about discipleship is becoming like the Master. That's what discipleship is. So let's just ask and answer a couple questions. The first question is, what is a disciple? I mentioned that already. Um, And then what does it mean to make disciples, or what does it mean to disciple someone else? A disciple, the Greek word is simply mathetes. It means to uh, be a learner. Uh, It comes actually from the word math, interestingly enough. Uh, And math didn't necessarily in the Greek Uh, uh, way of seeing didn't have to mean numbers uh, but math to the Greek mindset was someone who exerted the mental effort to think through an issue Uh, and so a mathetes a disciple was someone who was a a learner he would be with a teacher and he would think through what it meant to that that this person was leading them? What was the road this teacher was leading them down? And in that way, it was the idea of being a follower was applied to a disciple. This is what ex- exactly what Jesus invited people to when he would come up to a tax collector named Levi and say, follow me, follow me. So it's important to understand that biblically, a disciple is not someone who just thinks through intellectually information that they've received, uh, but a disciple is someone who thinks through information that they have received and then applies that knowledge within the context of a, of a relationship. That's, that is essentially what a disciple is. It is applied Someone who thinks through an issue and applies the knowledge within the context of a relationship. So what does it mean to make disciples? That's what a disciple is. What does it mean to make disciples? The Great Commission, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? Well, 
Essentially, making disciples is the process by which a, a disciple helps another person become a person who thinks through the implications of Jesus' teaching, applies them to their life in the context of a relationship, not only with a relationship with Jesus, but with a relationship with the discipler. That's what it means to make disciples. Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., puts it very simple. Disciple is, discipleship is helping people follow Jesus. Helping other people to follow Jesus. Pretty simple. Now, during our pre-launch phase, when back in, way back in 2016, when we were cl- clarifying our identity as a church, uh, we were coming up with our core values. Discipleship was one of them. But well, the word we wanted to use instead of discipleship uh, was the word growth. Because what we didn't want to give the idea is that you were a disciple only if you arrived at a certain destination. Uh, but a disciple is one who is growing. There is, you can point to ways that you've changed in your life as a result of interacting with Jesus and Jesus' people. Uh, it comes from our conviction that grows out of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We want to grow in His grace, but we also want to grow in our knowledge of Him as well. So if we're going to be serious about discipleship at One City Church this year, then personally, each of us has to ask the question, what am I doing that intentionally facilitates my own following Jesus more closely? What are, what are you doing intentionally that facilitates you following Jesus more closely. And then corporately, together, we have to ask, what are we doing to help others, help one another follow Jesus more closely? So let's look at the context of Matthew chapter 10. And discipleship can go in a lot of different ways. So I've chosen three from this chapter in order to help us think through what I feel would be um, good for us as a church as we look into being disciples. It's all going to be around this idea of it is enough. It is enough. The first one is it is enough to be like Jesus in suffering. Nobody likes to talk about suffering. But you can't be a Christian and escape suffering. That's part of the call. And we have to come to a place where it is enough to be like Jesus in the middle of suffering. In fact, the immediate context of this passage is all about suffering. The very next words Jesus says in verse 25 says, if they called the master Beelzebul, you say, what in the world is that? Has anyone ever been called Beelzebul? What is Beelzebul? Well, that is a reference for Satan. 
Um, it comes from an Old Testament passage in 2 Kings chapter 1. When Ahaziah, who is the king of Israel, he was not a good king. King of Israel, he was on death's door because he had fallen through a lattice uh, and had apparently done some internal injuries. And so he sent some of his servants to inquire of the pagan deity Baal Zebub, which was the god of Ekron. Ekron was a town about 25 miles from Jerusalem. And of course, uh, uh, Ahaziah was not in Jerusalem. He would have been further north. Um, but he sent his servants down to, or he was sending his servants down to Ekron because apparently Baal Zebub, and ba- Baal was just the name for the deity, the Canaanite pagan deities of the day, right? This was 900 years before Jesus came. Baal is sometimes how it is pronounced, but you've seen that if you've read the uh, Old Testament. But Zebub, does anybody know what the word Zebub means? It's only used three times in the Old Testament. It means flies. This was the Lord of the Flies. Anybody ever read that book? I did. Didn't know what it meant. I thought it was just some crazy kids on a beach. Um, (laughs) But... Ahaziah sent his servants to the Lord of the Flies to see if he was going to live. He could get some healing there. And while he was, these servants were on the way, Elijah intercepts him and says, you go tell your master, is there not a God in Israel to inquire of? Why are you going to the Lord of the Flies? Now, fast forward 850 years to the time that Jesus, now he's on uh, the scene, this term Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, had become synonymous with Satan. How do I know that? Well, turn over, keep your finger in Matthew chapter 10, turn over to Matthew chapter 12, and look at, starting in verse 22, Matthew 12, 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. Jesus healed him, so that man spoke and saw And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Term for Messiah. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So you see that. The prince of demons, that is Satan himself, the the chancellor, the lead spiritual adversary to God is now being called Beelzebul. And back in chapter 10, they're not only saying that by Beelzebul he's casting out demons. They're saying he is Beelzebul. Jesus is Satan. This is how fearful and twisted his adversaries had become. The point is is that Jesus' life and ministry was misunderstood, mischaracterized, and maligned by the people of His day. 
rather than submitting to it because they see the miraculous deeds that they're doing and saying, God's in the house. They're trying to figure out a way to protect the power structure of the day that worked to their advantage. And so they call him Satan. Now return to Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul or Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? How much more? What does this mean? Well, I think what it means, remember we're talking about it is enough to be like Jesus in our suffering, <clears throat> is that followers of Jesus, we, we ought to suppose that there will be such disdain for us, and that disdain will equal or exceed the disdain that they had for Jesus. I mean, that's the only way I understand how much more will they malign those of His household. Now, why is that? Why will they disdain us more? Well, I think one... It might be because they're less threatened by us, right? I mean, when you got a guy who can literally make a blind man see and a dead man rise and a lame man walk, you're pretty <laughs> you ought to be pretty cautious. But, but, our, but his followers, doesn't ha we don't have that kind of power at our disposal like Jesus. And so they're not quite as threatened by us. So I think that's part of reason why there's much more in a sense that we are going to be maligned than He was. Because they were a little frightened by Him. I think another reason is that we should suppose that much more will we be maligned than He was is because occasionally we sin. Right? Occasionally, the, uh, uh, the hypocrisy label can be put on us and it sticks, right? And so, we are, he couldn't be maligned. I mean, there was no accusation that would stick with Jesus. Everybody knew he hadn't done anything wrong. I mean, even the sinner that was, cruci sinner that was crucified next to him. He says, well, this man's done nothing wrong. Why are you talking so bad about him to this fellow criminal? Everybody knew the character of Jesus, but our character? Get under a microscope? And the hypocrisy label fits. Which, of course, gives people who don't want to believe a reason not to believe. Yeah. Christians, look at them. Nice. Follow Jesus, right? Ever heard that one? Well, the Apostle Paul knew what it meant to suffer like Jesus. <clears throat> and he, who himself was a persecutor of the church, but then went on to be one who advanced the kingdom of God after he came to Christ, he endured much persecution himself. And he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all 
who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everybody. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, and I assume that's most everybody in this room, everybody in this room, I hope. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer, you will be persecuted. That word persecuted, by the way, is the same word for pursue. It's an active, verse, uh, an active verb that means they're coming after you. So, certainly there's one way to avoid persecution. And that's to not be like Jesus. Keep your mouth shut. Stay silent. Don't live a distinctive life. And you can pretty much assure that you will fit in and avoid persecution. But all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus, we should expect to be persecuted. So I say, church, in 2020, is it enough for you to be like Jesus in your suffering? Are you willing to do that, say that, stand for that, which will cause you to suffer because you are aligned with Him. Second, it is enough, is it's enough to be like Jesus in our going. In our going. <clears throat> Most people in this world want to live at peace. I believe that. Unbelievers, believers alike. Most people don't want to make other people's lives miserable. You may say, I know some people who want to make my life miserable, but most people, I think, just want to live a somewhat peaceful existence. Uh, something typically has to stir people up in order to get them fired up. Persecution doesn't just happen to those who sit on a couch and stay quiet. It's the result of people being confronted with the kingdom of heaven. So look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 8. Right after the calling of the disciples, this is what happens. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. This is the beginning of the Great Commission. This is not the same Great Commission that is given after Jesus raised, is raised from the dead, but this is the beginning of it. And that beginning of it is that the Great Commission is to bring the effects of the Kingdom of Heaven to this world. Now, aren't you glad that the Great Commission after the resurrection includes Gentiles? Because in this one it says, don't go to them, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to the Criers or the Ansleys, don't go to the Cunninghams or the Millens. Go to the nation of Israel, the lost sheep of the nation of Israel. So thank God that it went to the nations. But Jesus gave His apostles, His disciples, the authority 
You see what he's doing here. He gives them the authority right here in Matthew 10 to reverse the effects of the curse, the fall. That's what he's doing. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Those are things that are affected because of the fall. And he's saying, I'm giving you authority for this period of time to reverse that as a way of showing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom was breaking into the world. Right here in Matthew 10. Now we too have authority and commission as well. Matthew 28, the next great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's the same purpose to reverse the effects of the fall by calling people into a relationship with Jesus to make disciples. Remember, a discipleship is a disciple is a follower who applies knowledge in the context of a relationship, and Jesus is sending his people to do that with others of all ethnic groups. From Congo to Tanzania to China to Somalia, in the Himalayan mountains, to the Andes Mountains, to New York City, Lancaster City, Lidditz, wherever there are people, go and make disciples. Reverse the effects of the fall. Call them to Jesus. And if we're to obey this, just like in Matthew chapter 10, they were to obey this. If we're to obey this, we cannot do this from a couch. Some might argue, yes, you can in the internet age. But, it requires going. It says go in Matthew 28. It says go in Matthew chapter 10. It requires followers of Jesus to always be on the go. Now for some, this may mean crossing ethnic barriers, linguistic barriers, living on other continents. But for the vast majority of us, it doesn't mean that. For the vast majority of us, it means bringing the kingdom of heaven to the people in the world that we already live in. In Shrewsbury or Lancaster. Why in the world did he mention Shrewsbury? By the way, we have some guests from a, a fellow Acts 29 church visiting with us tonight. Welcome again. We must be bringing the kingdom of heaven to the people in the world that we live in right here. And some will reject it. Some will receive it. Some who reject it now will receive it later. Which is why we never stop going. You don't go once and say, ah, well, cast those pearls before swine no more. Leave them alone. No, we keep going. We keep going. We keep pleading. We keep praying. We keep hoping. Because we never know who God is preparing when. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. By the way, this is written by the guy who was in the crowd in Matthew chapter 10, one of the twelve disciples. He heard this first commission. He's writing this now. 
Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, not if you're slandered, when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will or may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. These are people that are on the go. These are people who are ready, while they're on the go, to be able to give a defense. These are people who live so distinctively for Jesus that people say, dog, you got hope. Why do you have hope? And you say, I'm prepared for that question. I'm always prepared to give a defense. So we need to be, it is enough to be like Jesus in suffering. And it is enough to be like Jesus in going. Jesus went. Aren't you thankful that Jesus went? He went from the Father's presence. And he came into this broken world. And we can be like Him as we go. And then third and lastly, it is enough to be like Jesus <clears throat> in our God-centered worldview. God-centered worldview. Let me try to summarize this quickly. Everybody, if you're not familiar with this idea of worldview, uh, it's the idea of how you come to the conclusions that you come to. How do you come to the conclusions of what is right and wrong? What is good and bad? What it, I want to prioritize or not? And everyone lives with certain assumptions about how the world works. That's their worldview. James Anderson of Ligonier Ministries says a worldview is a philosophical view of how we view the world. It's an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. Worldviews largely determine people's opinions on matters of ethics and politics. And worldviews play a central and defining role in our lives. They shape what we believe and what we're willing to believe. How we interpret our experiences. How we behave in response to those experiences and how we relate to others. It encompasses our thoughts and our actions. And those are conditioned by our worldview. So, just give you an example. When we lived in Africa, there would, we would, often, there would often be times when like, we would say, why in the world would they do that? It just didn't make any sense to us. But yet we were trained to withhold judgment 
until you understand someone's worldview. Didn't make sense, but it made sense to them. And Jesus, our Master, His worldview had the Father right in the middle. How do I know that? Look at Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 10, verse 25 again. <clears throat> How much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. Does that seem like an odd construction to you? How much more they're going to hate you than me? So don't be afraid. Like, how can you come to that conclusion, Jesus? Hey, 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 hey. These guys really hate me. They're going to hate you a ton more, so go hang out with them. Don't be afraid of them. I'd be afraid, right? It makes sense to be afraid of people that hate you. A lot more than the one they're about to kill. Why not? Why not? Well, everything that Jesus says next as a reason for why we should not fear those who per persecute us is centered on God. And He wants us to be centered on God. He wants us to be centered on God. Look what He says next. He says, whatever is covered will be revealed. Hmm, how does that happen? Because God reveals it. Whatever is hidden is going to be made known. How does that happen? Because God makes it known. Whatever is said in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. And don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him. Who? God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of much more value than the sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will acknowledge before My Father in heaven. God, our Heavenly Father, knows the insignificant thing like dying birds and hairs, of, hairs on head. He cares about us. He cares that People hate us. He's watching over us. Everything is going to be revealed. Nothing that is hidden. Nothing, no plots, no plans against God's people will be uh, left uncovered. We should live with lives centered on the God who will make right every evil. Bring every evil to account. Make right everything that was done evil against us. That's why it says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who has a reason for the hope that is in you. How do we do that? We do that by being God-centered in our worldview. We do that by becoming thinkers, not mindless Christians who just follow the herd. Oh, this is what we do. We think. We think. And this is what it means to be a disciple. Any defense that you and I make is going, to be, is going to grow out of a worldview. 
So we needed to develop this God-centered worldview. Well, how do we do that? How do you develop a, a God-centered worldview? You do it, well, it takes time. It doesn't just come all at once like you get born again. But you got your worldview. No, it takes time with diligence. You, it takes an intake of God's thoughts by reading the Scriptures. And it's through the input of others who are doing the same thing. That's why being, discipleship is about applying knowledge in the context of relationships. So let me land this plane. In conclusion, in 2020, it's, it'll be enough for us as a church to be like our Master. How will you purpose to have a God-centered worldview? To develop a God-centered worldview. How can you take in more of God's Word this year? I mean, we talk about this all the time. But how can we really do it? So I want to give you a couple of thoughts. First one is this. We got, and this is what I started doing. If you start tomorrow, you'll be 13 days late, but who cares? Sign up on the Gospel Coalition's website. There's a little thing about halfway down. You scroll down their main page. It says, read the Bible. I love it. In fact, in my accountability group, I've asked these guys. I said, this thing right here is a slave to my quiet time. So that's what they hold me accountable to. But now, I've sort of done an in run on them because now this is useful for my quiet time. So every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, Gospel Coalition sends me what I'm supposed to read in the Bible. And here's why I love it. Because I can listen to it in double time. <laughs> right? Anybody ever have this problem? You're reading the Bible and you're, re and you're just reading it, but you just sort of like, you're reading it, but you're like over here thinking about work or something else. But somehow when that dude's speaking double time, you're like, <laughs> you're scrolling, you're listening. It's awesome. It's like what really helped me. So I'm, I'm like crushing it through the Bible already this year. Do that. Like, why not? And here's the thing. It always kills Bible reading plans. You know, you're like, I'm solid on this thing. If you miss a day, don't make it up. You'll get it next year, right? If you miss January 13th, who cares? Just do January 14th because what's going to happen is you're going to say, you're going to miss two days. And now you've got 12 chapters of the Bible to read before you've got a big meeting at work. And you're like, I can't do it. And you just give up on the whole thing. Just forget about it and just do day, the day that you're on. Read the Bible. Gospel Coalition. Please go and do that. Uh, second thing is, I want to put out a, a, a challenge. 52 verses of Scripture. If you would like to do a Bible memory challenge uh, this year, one scripture a week, my favorite Bible uh, memory verses. Email me this week and I will send you those, uh, those verses and we will uh, try to lock those in throughout this year. So, uh, the other thing I would say in creating a God-centered worldview, I mentioned that uh, a couple of us have started a discipleship group. I want to encourage you, find some people, ladies find ladies, men find men, and start a group that gets together. We do it for one hour. 5.45 to 6.45 on Friday mornings because we are busy and that's what works. And so when you know you've only got 60 minutes, then you, you, the chit-chat is minimal. We're right in it. We're asking people, we're asking one another about the, 
stuff that's going on in our life. So that's it. How are you going to purpose to have a God-centered worldview and help others have a God-centered worldview? Second thing, how will you get off the couch in 2020 and go tell someone about Jesus? Now, March 28th, right here, we're going to have a one-day seminar. Larry Filbert uh, is going to be. He works with pioneers, lives in the neighborhood. He is going to come and do a one-day seminar about uh, disciple-making movements. Uh, and I want to encourage as many as you can come out that morning, that's a Saturday morning, um, to come on out and we will uh, we'll be challenged with ways that we can make disciples of the people that we live around. So, uh, and then the, the other thing is about getting off the couch and going somewhere is who's in your life right now that needs the kingdom of God to break in? Like who is it? Like your parents? Your brother? High school friend, coworker, take them to coffee. Set up a meeting. Uh, if you love teenagers, we need people to help out with the teenage ministry. We got 12 to 15 teenagers who come here. Uh, we need people who will invest in them. So, as they're exploring the faith on their own for the first time. So, that's something I want to challenge you to do. And then, thirdly, how are you purposing to be like Jesus? in 2020 by suffering for Him? And how will you serve others in this church to encourage them to suffer for the sake of Jesus? How can you be like Jesus when you suffer? I'll just leave that right there on you. Well, let's close in prayer. I want to ask the worship team to come and lead us in a closing song.